This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Solvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. What is wokeness and where did it come from? For many Americans, this harmless sounding label has been the source of a disoriented cascade of shifts in social vocabulary, cultural mores, and political activism. On the surface, wokeism regards itself as an informed sensitivity to the differences in wealth and privilege between historically marginalized groups and those who have long enjoyed unchecked power and status. To those committed to its principles, the disparities of wealth are proof positive that discrimination is ubiquitous, where any challenge to the orthodoxy demonstrates personal ignorance and complicity in its harm. But a closer look at the principles that undergird woke ideology is a belief that members of society are defined by their identity groups rather than as individuals. Such orientation towards group essentialism reduces individuals to stereotypes, disincentivizes individual achievement, and gives rise to a political and social activism that divides society rather than unites it. Not content to celebrate the dignity of the individual, identity politics valorizes group victimhood and redefines society as a zero-sum struggle for power. Such group identity themes, once esoteric subjects for university seminars, are now the orthodox pieties preached by authorities from grammar school administrators to boardroom diversity officers. How did identity politics become ascendant in our institutional leadership? How does it differ from the classical liberal aspirations of universal individual rights? And how can a more robust understanding of the tenets of identity politics help to reveal the tension between its appeal for its woke activists and the counterproductive and destructive effects of its practice? My guest today is Johns Hopkins University professor Yasha Monk, whose recently released book entitled The Identity Trap a story of ideas and power in our time, chronicles the origins of identity politics and the path it took towards influencing mainstream culture. Professor Monk will discuss that while its desire to critique and reform modern liberal society may be well-intentioned, the practice of defining and dividing society by groups serves to undermine the hard-won victories of our diverse, pluralistic culture. When I return, I'll be joined by author and Johns Hopkins University professor, Yasha Monk. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now pleased to be joined by Johns Hopkins professor Yasha Monk, author of The Identity Trap, A Story of Ideas and Power in Our Time. Welcome to Hubwonk, Professor Monk. Thank you so much for having me, Joe. Okay, well, I enjoyed your book. Uh, I want to uh, uh, have you on as a guest to, of course, encourage our listeners to read your book, although I hear it's uh, it's now sold out. You are going to a, a second uh, printing. Um, uh, but I think it's a, a great map to help uh, many of our listeners understand the um, the what seems like a cultural intellectual upheaval all around them. Um, I'll, I'll stipulate for our listeners, your book is an explanation of all the left, just a particular strain that seems to be ascendant and, and quite dominant right now. Um, but we only have 30 minutes, so I want to cover a lot of bases in a short amount of time. Let's start with your introduction. I thought it was very, very, uh, it grabbed me. Uh, it's, a, it's a relatively long book, but the introduction really was concise in that it talked about examples of what you call uh, evidence of this identity trap. Share with our listeners some of the, the uh, experiences, everything from um, uh, modern school segregation to vaccine you know, allocations, these kinds of things. Share with our listeners. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the 
striking things uh, I did when I was researching this book was to speak to a woman called Kyla Posey, uh, an African-American woman who lives in the suburbs of Atlanta, uh, an educator. Uh, she has two young kids. And she asked the principal of her school whether she could request a particular teacher for her second grade daughter. And the principal said, sure, that's fine. Just send along the name. Uh, but once Kyla sent in the name, the principal kept uh, demurring and saying, well, what about this other teacher? And wouldn't a different classroom be more appropriate for her? And eventually she got frustrated and said, look, why you said I could choose a classroom for my kid? Why won't you let me do that? Uh, and the principal said, well, that's not the black class. Now, that sounds like a story of straight up racial discrimination in the American South until you learn that the principal is herself a black woman, somebody who has bought into a new set of progressive ideas that encourage educators to um, teach students to see themselves as racial beings, that say that if you don't have enough peers and friends of the same racial group, you're not going to be able to think of yourself in racial terms in the right way. A set of ideas that has inspired many private schools around the country to have uh, enforced racial affinity groups as early as the third grade or the second grade or the first grade with teachers coming in and splitting kids up by race into different kinds of classrooms. So that's one example. And another example I have is about public policy, as you mentioned, uh, when we finally got these life-saving vaccines against COVID, um, but we still had very sparse doses of it. Um, the Centers for Disease Control uh, chose not to prioritize older Americans who are at the most risk of a disease because it claimed that they're disproportionately white. And instead, it chose to um, give this vaccine to a much broader category of essential workers, even though its own model suggested that this would lead to a much higher death toll. Uh, and so in the end, you had movie producers in LA and finance executives in New York and college professors in the state of Maryland, like myself, end up being eligible for the vaccine ahead of many elderly people, even though, as it happens, I, I was not teaching in person. I wasn't allowed to teach in person. I was teaching on Zoom. So uh, when I worry about the hold that these ideas now have on the left, there's not just a lament about cancel culture or about what uh, you know, some silly student says, or you know, what ideas people are spreading on Twitter or social media. It really is about uh, uh, real changes in in public policy, in in the norms of institutions that have very high stakes. Indeed, uh, this is a uh, a new ideology, but uh, has a let's say older origins, a post World War II. Some intellectuals that some of our listeners may have heard of, but others may not have. Uh, let's take a step back. What um, let's say. Uh, me being a philosophy minor, I was an engineering major in undergrad, uh, but I do know about Foucault. Uh, we always sort of interpret it the sort of the opposite of the engineer, someone who refuted ideas of of um, uh, ob objective truth. You know, uh, we 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 uh, live and die by our principles of uh, uh, F equals M A and V equals I R. But uh, Foucault, he he uh, imagined a different world. You you set him as the origins of of how we walked down this path. Why is Foucault important in your story? Yeah, a lot of people who uh, have tried to chronicle the origin of these ideas, and there's not many of them, by the way. One of the things I'm struck by is that no serious academic has attempted to tell the intellectual history of the of this thought, um, claim that it's a form of quote, quote, cultural Marxism. Um, and that is uh, wrong substantively. Um, uh, you know, saying that you can take economic categories like social class out of Marxism is a little bit like saying that you can take the bat out of baseball. That's just not very much left of the ideology once you've done that. Um, but it's also wrong uh, as a matter of intellectual history, because as I show in this book, 
way to understand the main themes that animate uh, social adjustment, justice movement politics today is to trace them to three traditions, postmodernism, uh, uh, post-colonialism, and finally, critical race theory. So Foucault uh, rejected grand narratives, including both Marxism and liberalism in the 1950s and 1960s, um, uh, became very skeptical about ideas of uh, uh, universal values, of neutral truths, um, and embraced a conception of power uh, in which we shouldn't think of power as being top-down, as originating from laws and being enforced in society, uh, but rather as in hearing the kind of discourses and the kind of conversations we have right now as really lying and how we think and talk about the world and the categories we use for that. Um, a lot of thinkers in the second step is post-colonial thinkers were really attracted to the way in which these ideas served as a universal solvent, allowed you to be deeply skeptical of contemporary institutions, something that was appealing to them as they were trying to rethink how to rule the country after centuries of colonial rule. They didn't want to just take over Western ideas and institutions. But they also struggled with a way in which uh, Foucault's ideas were sort of apolitical, um, in which they didn't seem to allow you to make real progress. And so they set out to repoliticize these ideas in the form of Okay, no, no, that, that's true. So essentially, before you essentially uh, uh, reconstruct a new narrative, or again, he would reject the idea of a narrative, but before you sort of take apart uh, and, and rebuild, you have to take apart the old world. And, and Foucault effectively gave us both uh, an interpretation of the world that, that rejects narratives, it rejects, you know, sort of stable uh, identities. And uh, but but we had political actors who wanted to make use of this this uh, these tools. Uh, will you introduce us to Said and uh, and a woman on, uh, called uh, Gatatri Spivak, who uh, effectively say, okay, look, if uh, uh, if if there isn't a narrative, how how do we use how do we build a, a world for social change or 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 do something with this? Right. So take us from there. Yeah. So 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 these postcolonial these postcolonial thinkers were attracted to these ideas. Uh, because they allowed them to critique, uh, uh, you know, the ideas that had helped to justify colonial rule. And so, uh, you know, a philosophy that allowed you to criticize everything was very appealing to them. At the same time, they needed to figure out how to rule the countries. They needed a set of substantive ideas uh, to adopt and guide their societies in a, uh, a broader way. And so... Um, uh, they needed to repoliticize Foucault. Um, Edward Said was the first step in this. Uh, in Orientalism, he criticized uh, Western notions of the East, uh, of, of the so-called Orient, which he argued had traditionally uh, sustained colonial rule. Uh, but he didn't just want to uh, take an axe to that ideology. He wanted to redistribute uh, political power, to actually allow the colonized to become powerful, to fight back in an effective way. And so this originated a kind of form of politicized discourse analysis, which still remains influential today, which helps to explain why today, um, you know, a very legible form of feminist politics, for example, is not just to uh, argue, uh, uh, you know, for a certain kind of law, uh, but to critique or celebrate or render problematic something like the Barbie movie, right? And in the second step, somebody like Gayatri Spivak, an Indian literary theorist, um, 
uh, again, was very attracted to the way in which postmodernist thinkers had questioned the validity of uh, stable concepts of identity, um, uh, in which they said that, you know, uh, Foucault, who in our terms uh, was, homo- was a homosexual, was a gay man, somebody a man who had sex with men, didn't like that uh, category, that self-description, because he said that it obscured the ways uh, in which sexual uh, experience is uh, very varied um, and goes far beyond those kind of simplistic labels. Spielberg basically agrees with that, but then she says, uh, you know, unlike people like Foucault, I think that I need to be able to speak on behalf of identity groups. Foucault believed that workers could speak for themselves, and that might be true of relatively privileged workers in Paris who've had an education, who have certain kind of material and political resources. She claimed this was not true of the so-called subaltern in the third world, that people in Kolkata may not have been able to go to school, may not know how to read and write, may not have those material and political resources, and somebody needed to speak on their behalf. So she coined this term of strategic essentialism, uh, saying that philosophically, these essentialist notions of identity might be wrong, but for strategic political purposes, we should embrace them. That helps to explain how a lot of activists talk about these issues today, uh, saying race is, of course, a social construct, but this is what black and brown people demand. This is why we should defer to BIPOC people and so on. Uh, This is why in schools we should separate kids out by race and make sure that they think of themselves as racial beings. All of that is a kind of applied form of strategic essentialism. So we, if we can organize people into groups, define those groups as having common interests and some sort of uh, persistent identity, we can use those groups to activate and 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 produce uh, p- political outcomes. So okay, now we've got the we've got the groundwork. We've got Foucault saying essentially, uh, you know, my truth, and the, you know, we won't go too deep into that. But we've organized people into. Uh, we resolve the conflict whereby, uh, though identity is socially constructed, we can use identity for political change. Uh, I'm going to jump ahead and, and talk about uh, a modern uh, thinker that many of our listeners would have heard of, uh, Derek Bell from uh, Harvard Law School, who, uh, uh, in the hope, I suppose, early in his career of helping um people of color uh, at a time when there were still some racial segregation, started his early life uh, trying to help integrate schools and then ultimately uh, became disillusioned and said, look, uh, that's not the path. Uh, he might even argue against the civil rights movement. He said, you know, perhaps that was wrongheaded. We need to follow a different path, one other than inclusion uh, and go down a different road. Share with us how we got from um, Spivak to Bell. Sure. Um, uh, so, you know, Bell... Uh, uh, was a civil rights lawyer who helped to integrate, uh, you know, hundreds of schools and businesses and other institutions in the American South. Um, uh, but he came to think of that work as being in many ways a mistake. He, in fact, came to agree with the critiques of uh, segregationist uh, senators uh, who argued that civil rights lawyers weren't really arguing on behalf of their clients they were just trying to impose their integrationist ideology on the country. And so uh, Bell, who's an African-American, wrote his first influential academic article called Serving Two Masters, arguing that when he was claiming to represent these clients, he was not, in fact, arguing on behalf of their true interests. And that may, in many cases, have consisted in accepting schools that were separate but truly equal. Uh, He came to be a critic in many ways of Brown versus Board of 
education. And he called on his followers to reject what he called the defunct racial equality ideology of the civil rights movement. Um, so when you think about uh, critical race theory, you know, sometimes on the right, it is attacked as just wanting to uh, do things like teach kids about the history of slavery, which is obviously important. And then in the mainstream and on the left, sometimes people say, well, critical race theory, that's just wanting to think critically about the role of uh, race in society. What could be wrong with that? But when you go to the founders of this tradition, to people like Derek Bell, you see that they claim that America has not made any progress in race whatsoever, but key parts of the civil rights movement just served the interests of whites and that therefore we need to rip up that civil rights era legislation, rip up many of those um, uh, court rulings, create a society in which how you treat it is more rather than less dependent on the kind of group of which you're a part, except that it might uh, favor a different set of groups. Um, that is a much more radical ideology than many people have realized, and it has helped to inspire the deep pessimism about the ability of our institutions to make progress that is prevalent today, and it has also helped to inspire uh, the, the embrace of race-sensitive public policies, like the one from the CDC I described earlier, that uh, are prevalent today. Indeed, it's it's effectively race essentialism. You are your race, you are racial beings. Uh, and then again, to, to bring it all the way forward, uh, the, the last or one of the last uh, figures in the book that kind of puts it all together and brings us to modern times is Kim Crenshaw, who says, okay, not only are you race, you're a couple other things. You, uh, you're your sex, you're uh, female, you might be blue-eyed, left-handed, all these things add up to who you are. Uh, and e each of those identities uh, invites a different kind of oppression. And uh, the more of those things you can stack together, uh, the more oppression you experience and essentially creates a, in my view, a hierarchy or a framework in which uh, there's common cause amongst all the oppressed is just a degree, not whether you are oppressed. Uh, um, share with us how Kim Crenshaw, in a sense, ties it up together in a bow. Yeah, so uh, Kimberly Crenshaw coined the term of intersectionality, which in its original meaning was pretty straightforward and sensible. It simply recognizes that the kind of experience that, for example, a Black woman might uh, face uh, is more than the arithmetic sum of the prejudices faced by white women on the one side and black men on the other side. But in the way in which intersectionality came to be interpreted, it came to mean two more far-reaching things. Number one, the idea that if you and I stand at different intersections of identity, we really can't uh, understand each other properly. Um, uh, the best we can do is to defer to each other's judgment, particularly the person who's part of a more privileged group should defer to the judgment of a person who's less privileged. And secondly, therefore, that since all forms of oppression are interconnected, to be in good standing in one activist group fighting against one injustice, you need to also sign up to uh, all these other activist groups fighting different forms, different kinds of injustice. And so together, I think these themes really explain the shape of contemporary social justice politics, the skepticism towards objective truth that comes from uh, Foucault, the embrace of his politicized version of discourse analysis that is rooted in Said, the embrace of a kind of strategic essentialism that leads to pedagogical practices like the one we're seeing in American schools rooted in Spivak, the deep skepticism about our ability to make progress and the call for race-sensitive legislation inspired by Bell, and finally, this claim that we can't understand each other and that uh, uh, good activists should uh, 
defer to each other, uh, fighting against all forms of oppression at the same time, uh, rooted in Crenshaw. And this would be in, in, in stark contrast to what I would consider ourselves to be a, a fundamentally liberal society, one that believes in sort of the uh, universal equality of mankind uh, and it's sort of a, an ability to communicate across culture, across sex, across race, if we want to use those kinds of terms. That's in stark contrast. Essentially, it's an abandonment of those sort of what I would consider um, American values. I don't know if you characterize this Tocquevillian or how you would uh, describe those, but essentially it's in, in stark opposition to, let's say, uh, aspirational values of the Constitution, of the Declaration of Independence, those kinds of values. Is, is that fair to say? Yeah, and, and interestingly, it is in stark contrast to older uh, traditions of what you might call identity politics. Um, uh, you know, people like Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, were deeply aware of the injustices that African-Americans, for example, faced in their day. Uh, and they organized African-Americans to march against those. Um, but their demand was one for inclusion, right? They uh, recognized that values like the uh, Constitution and the Declaration of Independence uh, weren't being lived up to, but they told uh, other Americans, um, if you really mean that you're committed to these values, then by what right are you excluding me and other people like me from them? If you uh, are serious uh, and genuine in your commitment, you need to fight uh, to change our country so that we will be treated as equals. Uh, and this is really the fundamental divide between this tradition and everywhere else. It's a question of whether we've been able to make progress and whether those universal values were part of how we did make that progress. If, like Derek Bell, you believe that America is as racist today as it was at any point in the past, then I understand why you come to a conclusion that we should simply give up on what you're calling those American values. Um, but I think that that's wrong. In fact, it's offensive, not to the great Americans living today, but to the people who suffered much worse forms of discrimination in the past. How, for example, can you think that this country is homophobic as it was uh, at any other point um, when in you know, uh, your living memory and in my living memory, Ellen DeGeneres was forced to leave her talk show because, uh, sorry, her sitcom, because she publicly acknowledged um, having uh, a, 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 a girlfriend. And so once you recognize that, we, that our society remains imperfect, that there remain serious injustices in it, but that these values have in fact inspired political progress, allowed us to live up to these ideals more closely, then I think you embrace a very different vision of what the best way is to, to fight for further such progress. Indeed. Um, you know, I think we just, before we uh, recorded, we mentioned we were at... Uh... Harvard, uh, uh, at least I was leaving. You, well, maybe we were both leaving about the same time. I didn't see this coming. I, I saw, um, you know, this was uh, Occupy Wall Street year. I didn't see the sort of uh, uh, the ideology we're talking about right here. It was part of a, a more of a class or wealth thing, not a sort of an identity uh, uh, concept. When did you see, uh, like, when we when we talk about Derek Bell or uh, Kimberly Crenshaw? Um, you mentioned in your book that uh, social media had something to do with sort of uh, uh, affinity. But I think the aspiration or the hope when we had a um, uh, internet where everyone could talk to everyone, that that would have a universalizing effect, meaning we could all sort of find common cause uh, across the globe. How did it serve to uh, flame the uh, fan the flames of this identitarian uh, uh, view? 
Yeah, I, I, I wonder whether some people have suggested the failure of Occupy Wall Street is part of what moved the energy on the left from this kind of universalist economic uh, set of concerns, right, about all of us of any race. In fact, uh, you know, 99% of us in the population, we are really um, uh, being taken advantage of by this 1% of ultra-rich people. I think that's the slightly simplistic model of our economy and of our society as well. Uh, I think the true line in America often lies between the top 20% of which you and I and many listeners to this podcast are probably part of, and the 80% or 70% of Americans who are less privileged. Um, but, uh, 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 but, but, but it was firmly talking about economic issues. And, and when that movement sort of fell apart, the energy moved to those identitarian movements. And that may be part of the uh, story in an interesting way. But more broadly, you're right that uh, the, the hopes that people had in the internet in the 1990s just turned out to be absolutely wrong. They thought that, you know, in the past, we didn't communicate with people in Nigeria because, you know, calling them up for a minute on the phone cost, you know, a fortune, uh, let alone having a one-hour conversation. Um, but now on the internet, we're going to be able to talk to people basically costlessly anywhere in the world, and it's going to lead us to reach out to people who are very different from us. No, what actually happened is that when you gained the ability to communicate with anybody in the world, we chose to communicate with those who are as much like us as possible, who share a whole bunch of identity categories, and sometimes to create new identity categories by which to define us uh, ourselves. And I, I explain in the book um, uh, not just where these ideas come from, which we're talking about in the first uh, part of this conversation, but also how these ideas ended up spreading and becoming so influential between 2013 and today. I don't want to ignore this fundamental. Uh, the metaphor in your in your book is a trap, right? As something that has a an appeal and something that sort of captures you where you don't want to be. Like a mouse does not want to be caught in a trap. Uh, it's in your title. What what do you mean by trap in this? I mean, I think we've kind of set the 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 groundwork here for saying, look, we 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 wound up in a place that doesn't seem to make any sense, but perhaps there was some inviting ways that we got here. What did you mean by identity trap? Um, well, the idea of a, of a trap is, uh, first of all, that there's something seemingly appealing about the set of ideas. There's a lure, right? A good trap has a lure, a um, piece of cheese, perhaps. Um, in this case, the, the lure is the claim that uh, this is the ideology that in the most uh, uh, radical, uncompromising way is going to allow us to fight against injustices that are very real. Um, but I argue in the book, uh, it ends up being a trap uh, because it makes it harder for us to accomplish the goal of building a tolerant, thriving, peaceful society. It encourages all of the forms of zero-sum conflict between groups we've been talking about. In the last years, we've seen how many progressive institutions have had uh, enormous trouble uh, serving the missions because of the internal meltdowns they experienced. Um, uh, we uh, have seen how many of those policies end up backfiring. Um, the CDC's uh, way of prioritizing essential workers uh, for vaccines uh, didn't just kill more Americans. I think it most likely killed uh, more non-white Americans because if you give uh, uh, two 25-year-old black Uber drivers rather than one 80-year-old black retiree a vaccine against COVID, more black people are going to die. And finally, it's a political trap as well. Much of my previous work was on the crisis of democracy and the danger that that poses 
to our institutions. Um, uh, this ideology uh, appears to be diametrically opposed to uh, uh, right-wing populism, but in fact, they help each other. One of the reasons uh, why these ideas became so hard to criticize on the left after 2016 was that Donald Trump was elected president. But in turn, one of the reasons why Donald Trump is now running head-to-head with Joe Biden in polls for 2024 is that uh, these ideas have come to have so much hold over mainstream institutions. They seem to be in conflict with each other, but actually one is the yin to the other's yang. Yes, uh, if I have a criticism for the book, I, I can see that there's a sort of a, a sympathy for those who do fall into the trap, meaning you, you I think, uh, maybe I'm reading between the lines, ascribe some you know, virtuous intent. They, they do indeed want to help the world uh, become better, but um, perhaps it's my sort of right of center worldview and my experience with some of these same um, uh, identitarian uh, uh, essentialists, uh, I don't know what the right word would be, woke individuals is, they enjoy creating, uh, having control of language, of culture, of uh, these intellectual shibboleths, these 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 phrases that only they know, so as to uh, establish a p- power and control over others. Uh, they 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 essentially adorn themselves with the latest woke movement, rather than in a sense they don't seem the least bit troubled by the fact that they're actually not helping. There's certainly you know there's no measurable uh, effect. Uh, uh, for um, uh, people of color or, or for anyone else. In fact, as you say, there may be, a, 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 it may have cost lives during uh, COVID or, or you know, education for people who are, are segregated. It doesn't seem to trouble them. So to me, it seems like more of a, a, a quest for power than for, for real social change. What, what would you say to that criticism? Well, I, I, I think those two things can often go hand in hand. Um, you know, as a general uh, uh, outlook on the world, I assume that um, for most people, uh, they're the hero in their own story, the hero in their own movie, right? Uh, there are psychopaths and sociopaths. There are people with dark personality triads. And there's some interesting research in social psychology that those are overrepresented on the extremes, on the far right, but also on the far left. So I certainly think that some people use and invoke this ideology simply to be sadistic or to exercise power over others. But most people in the world, I think, are trying to uh, uh, at least pretend to themselves that they're trying to make the world a better place. And they'll say, yeah, we want to exercise power because we need power in order to make the world better. Um, uh, so, 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 yes, I don't think we should be naive about this and think that everybody is well-intentioned. We don't need to pretend that power is not part of a story. That's why the book is called The Identity Trap, a story of ideas and power in our time. Um, But I don't think uh, going into this conversation with the assumption that everybody uh, already holds, who holds these beliefs is just a bad faith actor trying to further their own interests is very helpful. And it's not helpful in part because I think there's many persuadable people and I've seen that. People who were originally quite attracted to these ideas, but who, as they've seen the damage it's done in the last years, as they've sometimes seen the damage it's done to institutions of which they are part, for which they volunteer, in which they work, have also become very open to the critiques that I'm trying to explain and and channel uh, in this book. And, and, you know, my audience for this book is is two sets of people. It's people who are torn in this kind of way. I want to be able to convince them. But it's also people who, perhaps like you, already are opposed to these ideas, um, but who I think need to understand 
the nature and the origin of these ideas and need to marshal the best possible arguments against them in order to push back effectively. And for that, I think uh, engaging in good faith with interlocutors who are open to persuasion is the best course of action. That's that's fair. I think I do fall into that second camp, but I, I, I'm sure that your book uh, will appeal to those people who might consider themselves uh, people of the left who have become disillusioned with wh- where this path has taken us. I, I mentioned at the outset that your book is uh, sold out, uh, so I'm sure we've piqued our uh, listeners' interest. Where can they find more about uh, your book? Uh, as I say, it's sold out, and more about your writing. I know that you do have a, a, a podcast, uh, a Persuasion Podcast. To share with our listeners how they can learn more about Yasha Monk. Well, there's, there's more uh, copies on the way. So by the time, I assume it'll take you a day or two to post this. By the time you're listening to this, if you go and order it online, you'll you'll get it within a few days. So I don't want to discourage people from, from buying the book. Uh, you will get it, uh, perhaps not the next day, but within three or four days. And of course, you can always listen to it on Audible or get it as an ebook as well. I have a podcast myself called uh, The Good Fight, in which I interview people, uh, leading thinkers and intellectuals and, and scientists and statesmen, uh, about their work and the deep issues in our world today. I run a magazine called Persuasion, um, which you can sign up for at persuasion.community. Um, uh, and, and that's it. Well, thank you very much. I, I could have, uh, as you probably can guess, would have liked to have talked with you uh, much, much longer, but uh, alas, our, our time is limited. Thank you for joining me on Hubwonk today, uh, Professor Monk. You, your uh, your uh, writing is, is, is really uh, persuasive and powerful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed this conversation. This has been another episode of Hubwonk. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support Hubwonk and Pioneer Institute. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. It would make it easier for others to find Hubwonk if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. We're grateful if you share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or suggestions or comments for me about future episode topics, you are welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. Hubwonk.